Hi, I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. The definition of narcissism, excessive interest in or admiration of oneself and one's physical appearance, or a narcissist, a person who has an excessive interest in or admiration of themselves, is or was your mom narcissistic? Is she controlling, abusive, insecure? My guest is a professor, author, and renowned psychologist focusing on narcissistic relationships. Hello, Dr. Romani, and welcome to Should Have Listened to My Mother. Well, thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm great. Now, you are originally a Good. Jersey girl, aren't you? I'm originally a Jersey girl, yeah. I was yeah. born in Englewood, and my, <laughs> I lived with my parents in West New York until I was, I think, like a, a year and a half, almost two, and then they moved to Connecticut. But you now are based in California. You have your practices out there. I'm in there. California, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Jersey girl. I like it. I'm now a Jersey, Jersey girl, girl myself. Yep, that's right. <laughs> you, uh, you have quite accomplished career, and, and it is a complicated one, especially when it comes to the topic of mothers and, you know, that one day that people supposedly make your mom special, Mother's Day, gets even more complicated. Did you go into this particular expertise because you experienced something of this behavior yourself? Not with my mother. I can say that, actually. Um, with with family members, in intimate relationships, in workplaces, but uh, interestingly, not with my mother. Well, so, that's good, um, right? Yeah, that was good. That was good. Yes, I, this this is a devastating thing for people. I know this is a very complicated subject, but narcissism is a learned behavior. People who are narcissistic haven't always had an easy path, which is what makes this so much harder. Some of them have had histories characterized by trauma, chaos, neglect, abuse, and that kind of early history. Now, it doesn't have most people who have those histories don't become narcissistic, but some do. And you can really pin it to not having safe, secure early attachments at that time, not having a sort of a space where they felt safe, not learning to soothe themselves. All of those things can be associated with adult narcissism. I always say that the story of narcissism is always a story you can tell backwards, but you can't tell forwards, meaning that I have worked with many clients in my career who had actually pretty horrific histories of abuse in childhood and are some of the kindest, most empathic human beings I've ever met. So it's not a slam dunk that somebody who has a rough start in life becomes difficult, antagonistic, narcissistic, call it what you will. Another way kids learn it is by watching their parents. A person who has a very, uh, a very entitled parent who walks the world like a human wrecking crew, who's rude to clerks, who is demanding, who is, um, is uh, unpleasant. You know, they get on an airplane or go to a shop or something like that. They, they, they demand certain things from the child's teachers. They're the one who's yelling at the soccer coach. That's also something a child can mirror. Now, like we I all said, know them. Right? Yeah, we all know that. Or like, you know, the kind of obsessive, crazed pageant mom or something. But here's the thing, and this is where I say it's only a story you can tell backwards, not forwards. There are people who let you listen to this thing. I actually had that terrible parent in childhood, and I do everything in my power to not be that person. And they're probably, again, some of the sweetest, kindest, most respectful people you'd ever want to meet. There's some belief that there's something around temperament, and temperament is sort of the biological part of our personality. It's sort of the very young child who's stubborn from the beginning or doesn't soothe easily or is really sort of always kind of jumping out of the seat like there's a fire under them all the time. Those kids who are often disruptive or 
difficult or behaviorally challenging, they, that we often do see that in people who end up becoming narcissistic. Oh, I would have oftentimes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just and oftentimes it's because these are not easy kids to be with, and nobody really likes them. So I think they get a message from the world early on that they're annoying, and there's something about that temperamental style that probably puts them at risk for developing narcissism too. Just the fact that the kids are labeled annoying and difficult is hard enough to stomach because it's not a very healthy situation. Narcissism, this topic is so complicated, and we're only scratching the surface here. Dr. Romani, I'm ready to hear about the role your mom played in your life. Could you tell us your mom's name? My mom's name is Sai, S-A-I. S is in sugar, S-A-I. Is she first-generation American, or where? She's an immigrant. She immigrated from India. So she grew up in India and then immigrated here. Mm -hmm. And your your dad or your fathers, they met when they were in India and then, or did they meet you here know, in yeah, America? They were, it was an arranged, my dad was already in the States and went back. It was an arranged marriage and then um, was introduced to her and then married. And how old was your mom when she got married? 17. Wow. Did she have any words of wisdom for you, or did she expect you to follow the traditional Indian culture as far as relationships were concerned? Where my mother was exquisitely courageous is that she, when she recognized she has a daughter, she knew that I would probably have more opportunities in the United States. And it was at a time when they could have... um, I'm just drinking something I don't want to cough, sorry. It was at a time when um, definitely I would have had more opportunities here. And so they raised us here, which hasn't been one of the hardest decisions she ever made because she actually came from a very close-knit, loving family in India. She would have had much, much more support. Here she was in in a world where she had no friends, didn't know anyone. Mercifully, her English was very good. I don't know how she did it. I mean, when I I have a 17-year-old daughter, and I have a daughter in her 20s, I think of them going off to another country in a marriage and having to figure it all out with no way to call. Because back then you couldn't make, um, you know, what we used to call transatlantic phone calls. You couldn't call. You'd have to send these things called cables that would take a little while to get to the destination. So, you know, she made a decision of she became very voiceless, right? And I think her attitude was we've brought we're going to raise our kids in this country we don't know the customs of this country, but we're going to have to trust our kids to learn them and figure them out because it's not realistic for us to straddle both of these worlds at the same time. And so she let us figure it out, and that was not that could not have been easy because it was all new. She didn't know what it was. I mean, I really, I do credit her with everything I've become in that way because it was um, it's a patriarchal culture. Men are quite it is quite challenging in marriages. In India, for many times, and I'm not saying this is not difficult. Women, there's plenty. Also, it's a big country, but um, you know, in in that way, she really almost had to very quietly be strong and raise strong daughters. I have a sister, and um, yeah, so we talked about that. And you know, she did not want her child getting married so young. She wanted me to finish my education. She wanted me to become more financially autonomous. You know, all of the things that you know we think nothing of here. She just didn't know how, what that path forward was, so it really was left in me and my sister and her life, but to me to sort of figure it out, to sort of 
there was no guidance. So the way I look at how children are handheld now and adolescents, like every decision made, I kind of have to figure it out my own, which probably wasn't a bad thing. And um, definitely tested my grit, my resilience, all of that. But, um, yeah, so we talked about it, and I, she just sort of decided it's not what she wanted for us. And so she really let us kind of guide her own death. But education was important, a good education. It was the only path forward. The one thing of my my parents' immigration, sort of that string was education was it. It was the only way that a South Asian immigrant you know, from India, for example, was going to be able to make it in this country was by being educated. And so whether that was in medicine or whether that was in engineering or something, you had to get educated. It was the only, and that was a nothing, nothing less than that was an option. So very strict about school, very strict about excelling at school. Like I said, it was a blessing. I mean, strict about reading, everything. And it was, and my mother was a massive reader, so she brought in me a love of reading and a love of all things academic, and she was very interested in a variety of topics. And so, you know, in, it was in that way, the conversations we'd have and all of that, she's, she's very wise. And so, um, but education was everything. And she saw it as the only way forward for a woman. My mother actually went on after I was born and while she was pregnant with my sister, you know, still trying to run a household in this world where she didn't really belong. She managed to get a master's degree here in the United States. Um, in what? Went on to do some, in, in economics, actually. Wonderful. And she went on to do some teaching um, at the university level, and then she went on to have a, you know, a nice career at Yale University working in a variety of administrative and managerial positions. So, you know, it's... It, it's quite remarkable how, you know, like I said, literally with, you know, no base to start from, built a house, you know, and kind of taught us to do the same. But there, you know, education, it was, there was not it was a non-negotiable. Because for all Indian immigrants of that era, it was the only path forward. It was the only way. Because we didn't have, for example, inherited wealth. We didn't have family businesses you could pass on. None of that existed. We had to find some way to hold, you know, to have that toehold in the society and that. That's what it was going to be. It was a racial thing, too, though, right? She was concerned. So. Yeah, yeah, it was, because she thought, no, my, my, both my parents, but my mother, my sister, she said, no one in this society is going to ever respect you. They don't want us here. And the only way you're ever going to get an ounce of respect is to have a title in front of your name. And they're like, you know, that's why they wanted me. You know, I ended up getting a PhD. I think they would have preferred I went to med school. But she said, at least then they have to address you in a way that commands some level of respect. Because she was very clear. She's like, nobody wants to see it. And so um, we're going to have to, you're, you're going to have to find a way to garner that respect somehow. And that's why education is pushed at some level. It was the one thing that couldn't be taken away. So did she start this conversation when you were very young or when you were a teenager? Very young. Very young. I was about five years old. Wow. So it's just innate in you. So were you ever sneaking out your bedroom window at night going to a party? <laughs> nope, never. Never, ever, ever. Didn't drink my first drink till I was 21. So, um, yeah, no, and even then, not so much. But no, none of that. Like, I, I think, uh, my sister's a bit more of a handful, but I do think for me, I was so aware of the level of sacrifice. And it's, it's not a day that doesn't go by. Many times people say, why do you work so hard? You know, why are you doing this? And I said, you know what I think it is? I think I'm, it's a grudge match between me and the world for every generation of women before me, and there's probably thousands of them who didn't have any opportunity. So to me, I feel like I, at some level I'm attempting to vindicate all of that, especially for my mother, who would have had a very robust career had she not gotten hamstrung by things like marriage. So 
I think it's very much an homage to every woman who ever came before me in my family that failure wasn't an option and I, I, I had to do good. I had to make change in the world. So um, that was, you know, it was, I was definitely raised with that. And it was almost it was clear to me I had freedom. She didn't. So I can't, um, I can't, uh, I throw can't it throw away. Go. Yeah, throw these away. Yeah. It's an mm-hmm. honor and a privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And and what kind of role did your maternal grandmother play in your life? Did, was she able, ever able yeah. to come over and and live with you guys? Or for a short periods of time, they were. There was definitely um, it was a little bit easier at that time, you know, with the, with the policy in the United States for her to come and spend some time with my grandfather, and she would come from time to time. She, um, if anything, I mean, bless my. I mean, I'm looking up the disguise as I say this. I'm sorry. We call Amama, the maternal grandmother, was called Amama. She was probably a bit of a narcissist, to be honest with you. She was a pistol. <laughs> she was a real pistol. Um, tough as nails, smart as could be. And, I, and my mother said this. She said, had she come up in a different world, she did this one. She would have been a formidable businesswoman. She would have been like that, that person who just sort of, you know, like the ultimate, the ultimate leader. She, she had all of that in her. I could see her fierceness. I remember going to uh, the market, like the marketplace stalls in India with her as a child and watching her bargain the folks down, like on all kinds of things. And I mean, it would get heated and clearly she'd get her price. And that's how she was with everything. And I, even years later as an adult, I go to India and she would sometimes travel, you know, with us. And um, she would always like, oh, they're ripping you off. They know you're American. And she's like, you go hide in the car. I'm going to go bargain this. So she was that person. And to this day, when I bargain for anything, I, I feel her. I wish I was as good a negotiator as her. In her, I saw the absolute potency of a person who got completely thwarted by the system. She's yeah. incredibly smart. Born ahead of the time. Yeah. Born ahead of the time. And so... You know, so she's a pistol. And, in fact, my daughter, one of my daughters now, really reminds me of her, like a real pistol. And um, and so I, I, the last time I actually was, you know, and, and from her I got an interesting life lesson. There was a family wedding back in 2000 and, I think it was 2014, maybe the end of 2014, into 15. And, you know, I knew she was getting older, and it was a real stretch for me. But I went to India and um and saw her and had a wonderful time with her. She died about six weeks later. So I felt so fortunate to have had that time as an adult to, you know, not, you know, sort of in that in-between zone when you're young and you don't quite appreciate it. But I, I, and that only reinforced for me, once again, somebody who lost voice and lost, um, lost their power. But like I said, she was a handful. She was not an easy woman. And if you talk to my mother about it, she'll say, oh, no, not, not an easy woman. And so... Um, but I, I really, I remember watching one of my strong childhood memories is going to the, you know, the bazaar, we called it, in, in India, and watching her bargain. And really, um, and not quite clear what the heck was going on, but, and, and really um, missing her when I wasn't with her. So, yeah, and I didn't get to see her that often. Oh, my gosh. Was your mom, did she do the antithesis of your grandmother when it came to raising her daughters? So my yeah, so my grandmother was extremely conservative in how she raised her daughters. Part of it was safety. You know, this idea that Indian society, so my mom was growing up was like the fifties, I guess fifties into the sixties. It was it was not always safe for women. It's still not very safe for women, but it's definitely not then. And it was this there was my after after the uh, fall uh, after in after the British left 
and um, India became an independent country, um, then it, it caused chaos in the economy there. And my mother's family really struggled financially, really struggled. Like, you know, it was awful. And um, at the time then, in some ways, a, a girl, a daughter, is a financial liability. It's one more mouth to feed. So if you can marry them off, then you pull them off. You know, you've gotten rid of them. Your success. Like, and that, sadly, they had to, like, so my mom got married too young. My mother had actually gotten into medical school. She was one of the top students in that region of India. She got into med school, and she had to give up all of that. To get married. So, oh, like I said, no. I've got a really, really big monkey on my back. It's no two ways. I haven't even, it's funny you're pulling these stories out of me. I haven't thought about it, you know, but um, so she had all that ahead of her and had to, had to cancel all of her dreams um, to do this thing, in essence, in the service and duty of her family. So her family, you know, could, like, you know, again, also have like a creates better position in society when daughters were at that time in history when daughters were marrying and you know it's almost like mergers if you will and and then go to the united states was a really really That's big deal and i a think huge my success mother's, right yeah, for your daughter huge, to go yeah, and live my, in the united states huge and my mother's family darn near went broke trying to get the money together for that airplane ticket so um it's a you know it really is, you know, I think when we, when we talk about immigration, we talk about these vast numbers, but we don't talk about these extraordinary individual stories, which every immigrant has. And, um, and so, yeah, so she definitely was raised in this very constricted, controlled, strict, there's only one path forward kind of a way, and that it was more important to my grandmother that my mother got married than she went to med school. Well, they had to put food on the table, right? It's put food on the table, yeah. Mm-hmm. And honor, yeah. the honor. Mm-hmm. And the honor, yeah. So, did your mother love your dad? Does she love your father? <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's at 17. Like, I'm going to give I'm gonna give the watered-down version in case people listen, the people know me. It's complicated. You know, it's complicated. They make because it work. The, yeah, the construct, I mean, even very far coming on to, this is going to be, what's Years? More than fifty years? So it's in a um it's a it's a complicated yeah, sixty years. And wow. it's a complicated question because the construct of marriage is very, very different. I have met people in arranged marriages who it, it was a home run. They you know, it, it was sort of arranged ish. You know, in my parents, it was arranged, no ish. And um I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't, certainly nothing. I, I wouldn't call it romantic love. I think it's companionate love. I think that they, you know, have each other's backs as two people who've lived together for 60 years would. Um, and, uh, but, you know, not, not something I'd want for myself. And um, so it's not, you know, that idea of a love marriage is a, it's considered one of those things that you see in the movies in India, at least when they were growing up. And even now, arranged marriages are still very much. There was this recent show that came out, um, Indian Matchmaker, which really talked about how complicated these conversations are because of the role of marriage and family in Indian, um, in Indian culture and society. So, you know, again, not, not my version of what I've considered marital love, but what do I know? I'm divorced. So Did she give you marital advice? Not really. You know, she gave it to me after the fact when she said, you know, this is where I dropped the ball. She, there was a lot of pressure, even when I was growing up, for um, them to ensure I got married. If I didn't, it would sort of be a bad look. And um, so 
so there was a pressure. She said, in retrospect, I should have, you were never made for marriage. And, you know, she's, I, I, I knew that, and I should have said something, but I, I think at some level my mom was also trying to dodge the societal criticism because I was sort of the eldest of the oldest. You're you know, the oldest, so you have to uphold the, the honor. Yeah, well, not, yes, I had. So I, and I married a white person, and um, we remained good friends, but I, I, I'm not made for marriage. So I, um, I, I was, you know, I think just the model I saw of it and everything, it just wasn't quite my cup of tea, and I was very ambitious and wanted to do what I do. But um, we find our way, you know, I'm blessed with a wonderful And you have life. daughters. I'm not going to get married. Two daughters, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Beautiful. I could just talk to you forever. My guest, Dr. Romani, has her own YouTube channel. You were featured yeah. April of 2021 on Red Table Talk with Jada Pickett-Smith, her daughter yeah. Willow Smith, and Jada's yeah. mom, Adrian Banfield Norris, which is really great, Red Table Talk. Check that one out for the latest on Dr. Romani's advice. There's definitely a lot of information out there about you. Any advice for someone who's struggling or, or they're, they're not certain why their mom is treating them the way that she's treating them? Get help, you know, talk to people. What do, you, what do you do? I think just that when people have difficult relationships with a difficult mother, it's actually one of the most difficult things that can happen because there's so much shame around that, right? Mothers and daughters are supposed to be close. So, and, and especially when it's from the direction of the mother being critical, invalidating, unempathic, competitive, because in those relationships, it's not unusual for the mom to fall back on, well, I raised you, didn't I, and I gave up my life for you, and there's a lot of that manipulative sort of guilt. I can say this, you know, I'm, I'm one of my kids, my mother never has said anything like that. I hope to goodness I never say something like that to my own daughters you know, as they're adult women, and so I, I feel like it's a, um, it's, it's a place where a lot of people get isolated, because it feels almost shameful to have this kind of relationship with a mother, and it feels shameful to be critical of their mother in in mixed company or even in company that they know, people that they know. It's such a forbidden topic. Families are supposed to get along. People are supposed to worship their mothers. And yet, every day, I hear the stories of so many people who had the most toxic relationships with their mothers, and this shapes them. I mean, they can credit their, their fact that they have very little belief in themselves, that they're full of self-doubt, that they walk through life confused, that they make poor partner choices. All of this connects back to not feeling that sense of safety and, and connectivity. Although parenting models have changed and many, many more, you know, we've seen two parents being involved in their children's lives in a much more equal way than we did maybe a generation or two generations ago. The, that's why that maternal relationship becomes, when it's the mother who's narcissistic, it's so powerful because that's often the person kids were turning to as primary caregiver. And so that's the really, um, honestly, that, that's the challenge is that for many people, they're like, this was supposed to be my safe space, and it wasn't. And sadly for them, this idea of a mother as selfish, those two things aren't supposed to be in the same sentence, but if the person has a narcissistic mother, they have the most selfish mothers, who, mothers who consistently choose for themselves and will even manipulate their kids and say, well, this is mommy's self-care. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're not doing anything to your child, and now you're trying to, like, throw your kid under the bus by saying you're not spending time with them. It's self-care. And so it gets them, it, they can, these, these are moms who can really do a number on their kids and manipulate them through a lifespan. And then as those mothers get older, those very difficult narcissistic moms get older, now you may have a child 
who feels like, great, now I've got to take care of this person. And we do know these narcissistic patterns tend to get worse with age. So it could be an older parent who may actually be having, be experiencing dementia, which can often make all of this much, much worse. And there can be a lot of ambivalence and a lot of anger and resentment after not got, getting what a person felt that they, they needed from a parent and now having to turn around and make some massive sacrifices in the name of feeling obligated for, uh, in terms of taking care of them. Very complicated territory. It is very complicated, but you don't have to let it ruin your entire life either, right? You can do this, can't you? The thing you need to know about narcissism is it's very rigid and it's very resistant to change. So the person who keeps waiting for the moment, I know, I know, when this happens, they'll be proud of me. When I buy a house, when I get married, when I have a baby, when I make this much money, if I take them on a vacation... These are people who, through their adult life, until their 40s, 50s, 60s even, keep trying to, they're still like the little kid coming home from school with the picture they drew saying, Mommy, isn't my picture pretty? And the mom is totally focused on herself and so is not noticing that. And is often, narcissistic mothers often turn to their kids to sort of be like the parent. After a while, this kid is the one who's figuring out, like, okay, we need to make sure we have the lunch stuff and got to make sure that my younger siblings this. Like, it really puts kids in a parentified role because narcissistic parents are so immature. So there's definitely that, that sense of, you know, you, you didn't, you, you, it's not going to change. That selfish mother when you were five is that same selfish mother when you're 65. But that narcissistic mom knows which child is, whether it's the empath or, because it's not every child, right? And we talked about Uh, this earlier, and we're we're just about out of time. So, but the mom knows which one to clutch and grab onto. Right, right. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely do. And and that's what I'm saying. That's the manipulativeness, turning their children to instruments to meet their needs. And so, because if you armed with the knowledge that this pattern isn't going to change, you stop jumping through hoops for them. And then I say to people, listen, you can, some people, listen, I've worked with people who cut their mothers off entirely, saying, I want nothing further to do. You've caused so much harm. These are mothers who will actually financially prey on their kids, you know, throughout their adulthood, too. And some people say, you know what, I have a very remote relationship with my narcissistic mother. You know, some people will say, I got burned. I thought now that she's a grandmother, it'll change. And then they behave the same way with the grandchildren. And so, it really is a mixed bag, and I think more than anything, it's really about having realistic expectations, radical acceptance that this won't change, and set some really cement boundaries. And there's a lot of grief in this process, which is where therapy becomes so important, to grieve this idea that you didn't have that mom that was secure and safe and available and all of that. I don't know that anyone has it just perfect, but in, if it, in this case, it really feels like a big, colossal loss, and one that can often haunt people into adulthood. They're still having this difficult relationship, and there's grief around that. And sometimes people will say, part of how I worked this out was I tried to be that very involved, unselfish, available, safe mother. So they sort of they do the working through and how they raise their own kids. Sometimes there's other family members and aunts, a grandmother, who kind of takes that role de facto, and they feel mothered by that person. Sometimes even mothering figures in their life, mentors or older women they meet professionally, or even as friends. And so there are places that people can certainly try to work some of it through, but there's grief that has to be mourned. But also people understanding this pattern, so above all else, they don't blame themselves for their mother's bad behavior. 
You are the author of two books, Don't You Know Who I Am? And Should I Stay or Should I Go? Dr. Romani, thank you so much for joining us. So much more to learn on this topic. I'm Jackie Tantillo. We'll see you next week.